1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing Dave King engineering Coming up later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to share a conversation I had last week with uh, Dr. Jessica Lynn Taylor. She is the new president at Multnomah University, their seventh president, in fact. And she uh, joins us to explain the new configuration at Multnomah, which is now referred to as Multnomah Campus of Jessup University. She'll explain all of that, how we got here and what's next. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We did uh, share that conversation last week in the first hour, but I wanted to give those who listen in the second hour an opportunity to hear what she had to say as well. So that's coming up uh, later in today's program. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. 200,000 pro-Israel demonstrators chanted as the families of hostages kidnapped by Hamas into Gaza spoke at the Washington, D.C. rally earlier today, the March for Israel, people across the nation traveled to Washington, D.C. to participate. The huge crowd demanded a return of hostages and condemned anti-Semitism. The war has uh, seen anti-Semitic incidents in the United States soar by nearly 400 percent. Well, in a rare show of bipartisanship, new Republican Speaker Uh, Mike Johnson, he appeared alongside Democrat Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries as they all pledged their support for Israel. The calls for a ceasefire are outrageous, Johnson said. Israel will cease its counteroffensive when Hamas ceases to be a threat to the Jewish state, end quote. Schumer also took the stage and said, Never, uh, never, ever will we forget the evil of Hamas as he chanted, bring them home with the crowd. The New York senator, the highest ranking Jewish elected official in American history, pledged, We will not rest until we get all the assistance you need. Meanwhile, Jeffries, uh, Representative Jeffries also pledged to continue working in Congress to support Israel, saying Hamas wants to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. So let me be clear, we will not let that happen. A Democratic political analyst, Van Jones, was one of the first to speak to the crowd and said he was uh, praying for the return of the Israeli hostages. The Jews stood with the civil rights movement. And that's why I can say I can't stay silent, he said, uh, of the event Today, I am a peace guy. No more rockets from Gaza and no more bombs falling down on the people of Gaza, Jackson added, uh, prompting the crowd to chant no ceasefire. Israeli President Isaac Herzog, he made a virtual appearance from the Western Wall in Jerusalem and thanked American allies and the Biden administration for their moral clarity. Relatives of some of the hostages and actress Deborah Messing were also among those scheduled to speak. The event was organized by the Jewish Federations of North America and the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. The Jewish Federations of North America said the event would bring together communities from across the country to show strong Solidarity with the Israeli people while demanding the immediate release of the remaining hostages and to condemn the rise of anti-Semitism. Yeshiva University in New York canceled classes on Tuesday, and 2,500 students uh, were invited to attend the rally, according to the university president, Rabbi Ari Berman, speaking to the Washington Post. Also, more than 250 New Yorkers traveled in five buses to the Capitol for a day trip to attend the rally. Jewish students from Queens College in New York and the University of Maryland also traveled to D.C. to attend. Also, a video posted to social media showed members of the Jewish Federation of Cleveland, Ohio, hopping on a bus heading for the rally early on Tuesday. And while there have been no direct threats against the uh, demonstration organizers, Uh, They've said they expected counter protests to be present and uh, police have said that they would step up their presence and the National Guard had been called in to assist. There were no incidents during that rally. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said there have been uh, attacks on businesses that are run by Jewish people in addition to attacks on individuals and places of worship. I'm not talking about stores producing IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, T-shirts. I'm talking about a coffee shop on Long Island, an ice cream parlor in the Bay Area, a restaurant in Chicago, he said. Greenblatt also raised the issue of the spate of anti-Semitic incidents that have taken place on campuses of Ivy League colleges, Including Harvard and Cornell, the ADL Center for Extremism said preliminary data showed 312 reported U.S. anti-Semitic incidents from October 7th to the 23rd of October, including harassment, vandalism, and assault. About 190 of those were directly linked to the war between Israel and. Hamas. So there seems to be a link, he pointed out. The Biden administration warned that U.S. schools and colleges must take immediate action to stop antisemitism and Islamophobia on their campuses, citing an alarming rise in threats and harassment. Last week, the Education Department said there's renewed urgency to fight discrimination against students during the Israeli Hamas war. The letter reminded schools of their legal duty to protect students and intervene to stop harassment that disrupts their education. The rise of reports of hate incidents on our college campuses in the wake of the Israel-Hamas conflict is deeply traumatic to students and should be alarming to all Americans. The Secretary of Education, Secretary Miguel Cardona, said in a statement, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia and all other forms of hatred go against everything we stand for as a nation. Again, some 200,000 people participated in the march for Israel earlier today. Well, stringers, it's the colloquial term for freelance photojournalists. They're often employed by multiple media news outlets, but are still bound to the journalistic ethics and rules when obtaining and selling their photos. Well, these types of photographers are essential, particularly in locations um, that are not domestic to aid in coverage of breaking news. However, stringers employed by American-based mainstream media or MSM companies such as Reuters, the Associated Press, the New York Times and CNN appeared to have crossed that ethical line. They were present, documenting the attack from start to finish and potentially participating in the October 7th massacre in Israel. They crossed the border illegally into Israel, and many were not wearing any gear that identified them as members of the press. The journalistic watchdog group that uncovered this duplicity is called Honest Reporting. It discovered that these photojournalists were not only linked to these news outlets, but seemed to be in collusion, or at least embedded with Hamas terrorists during the attack. Honest Reporting, they reasoned, What were they doing there so early on what um, would uh, ordinarily have been a quiet Saturday morning? Was it coordinated with Hamas? Did the uh, respectable wire services, which published their photos, approve of their presence inside enemy territory together with the terrorist infiltrators? Did the photojournalists who freelance for other media like CNN and The New York Times notify these outlets? Judging from the pictures of lynching, kidnapping and storming of an Israeli kibbutz, it seems like the border has um, has been breached not only physically, but also journalistically. Uh, when the article broke, the biggest question on many people's minds was, did these American news outlets have advanced knowledge of the attacks? All of the mainstream media outlets have unequivocally denied having advanced knowledge. And while this may be, well be true, these outlets did pay for these freelance photos and gave them photo credits on their sites. They have since faced calls, particularly from Israel, to distance themselves from the photographers in question. CNN has severed ties with one of the photographers, Hassan Eslaya. Uh, This photojournalist had done work with the AP as well. On the 7th, he had a lot of questionable photos uploaded, such as um, of a Hamas leader in which he was in an embrace, breaching the Israeli border, and most infamously, one of him posing with Hamas leader, one of the orchestrators of the massacre. Well, there's more to be said, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Just before the break, we were talking about mainstream media photographers who were present with Hamas in the midst of the attacks, um, filming what was going on. And there's some questions about whether or not they had. Uh, information that they were going to take place before they happened and the ethics behind it. They're called stringers, and uh, many of them are employed by American-based mainstream media companies like Reuters, the Associated Press, the New York Times, CNN, and they appear to have crossed an ethical line. And there's a big question being asked uh, right now about that. Well, the mainstream media have always had a certain slant when covering the uh, the Israeli Hamas war. They tend to report Hamas as the victims when it Uh, was Hamas that actually attacked Israel. They hide behind civilians to protect themselves. They steal from their people to live lives of luxury and gutter and openly call for the eradication of the Jews. The New York Times biased reporting on behalf of the terrorists has already gotten it into trouble. They've had to retract a few things grudgingly. Well, now to the wisdom of using freelance journalists based in Gaza. Well, this is a fraught proposition from the start. These Palestinian journalists are likely either a part of Hamas or are controlled by the terror group. They have no real journalistic freedom, and using them as reliable sources doesn't seem to be a very good idea. Well, the mainstream media are full of... Um, uh, decision makers who don't think these things through in a way that doesn't breach ethics. Hamas happily uses these journalists to, uh, as intermediaries to play games with Western media, which turns around and paints this inaccurate picture of oppressed oppressor dynamic to justify the atrocities. Well, they are dedicated to the moral equivocation narrative, and because they've become a narrative driven rather than fact driven, they are the West's biggest traitors. Why this mainstream media insistence on moral equivalence, particularly in light of all the clear evidence of Hamas being the agents of genocidal evil against Israeli Jews, is an open question that isn't that difficult to answer. They're not a short or easy answer to uh, to the question, but part of the answer has to do with the departure from Judeo-Christian-based morality and the move toward leftist notions of moral relativism and Marxist teaching of racial oppression. Other parts of the answer have to do with uh, what journalism has become, narrative-driven, reporters' uh, blindness to their own hypocrisy and betrayal of journalistic values that once existed have led them uh, to this past. Well, the Daily Wire's Ben Shapiro asks the biggest question of all, and I'm quoting, would journalistic outlets like the AP and Reuters use stringers associated with the white supremacist groups in order to take pictures at Charlottesville? Or are they only willing to use stringers who associate openly with terrorists and voice their support for Hitler, so long as they're Islamic radicals? What moral responsibility do the AP and Reuters and their like a bear for printing the propaganda of Hamas and its minions. Excellent questions. Well, these um, media outlets have little or no public trust as it is. Most Americans, according to a New York Times CNN poll, believe that the mainstream media are the major threat to democracy. Now, this statement is probably more reinforced after the pitiful um, coverage of the Israeli Hamas war. They're actively spreading propaganda in aid of the terrorists attacking the only democratic nation in the Middle East. They are despicable, and this is just the latest nail in their morally corrupt coffin. We'll continue to follow that story. By the way, Turkey's um Uh, Rhetoric and positions on the Israeli-Hamas war have paved the way for closer ties with Iran, which both nations will explore as they seek to resolve longstanding issues. Turkey cozying up to Iran after praising Hamas's Mujahideen, Mujahideen, let me get that right, seeking reconciliation on key issues. Compartmentalization has long been the name of the game for the Iran-Turkey relationship under the Islamic Republic and the AKP, respectively. That's a uh, a quote, rather, from um, Benam Ben Talblu, a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Um, He says that Turkish President uh, Erdogan is the chairman of the AKP political party. While traditionally the two non-Arab Muslim Middle Eastern powers have competed as, uh, as to who can champion the Palestinian street, Uh, A post Arab Spring Middle Eastern order has led to more opportunities for a NATO member and the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism to channel their political ire and more at Israel. So an interesting alliance that is somewhat surprising. Again, we're talking about a NATO nation um, and Iran cozying up to one another. Well, we learned this afternoon, late this afternoon, that the House has passed a bill to avert a government shutdown. Speaker Johnson has notched his first big legislative win, but many are scratching their head. What was the difference between what McCarthy did and what Johnson just did? Well, the House passed a bill to avert a pre-holiday season government shutdown today, this, uh, this evening in Washington, Eastern Time along um strong bipartisan lines. It passed 336 to 95, well over the two-thirds margin it needed to get the measure over the finish line. Just two Democrats voted against the bill, along with 93 Republicans. It's now headed to the democratically controlled Senate. Uh, where Majority Leader Chuck Schumer indicated that he would take it up as soon as possible. Well, fiscal year 2023 government funding has been extended through November 17th to give Congress more time to pass the 12 individual appropriations bills, setting up this next year's spending priorities. But faced with another looming deadline, House and Senate leaders, they agreed another short-term extension, keen on uh, uh, holding things uh, as, uh, as they are, it's known as a continuing resolution was needed. Now, again, this is precisely what McCarthy said. Well, the bill's passage was the first big legislative test for the new Speaker, Mike Johnson, uh, who took on the role less than a month ago, shortly after ex-Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, was ousted. Well, despite more Democrats voting for it than Republicans, Johnson did net a win in getting a majority of GOP uh, conference to support the continuing resolution. His plan, released on Saturday, creates two separate deadlines for funding different parts of the government to set up more targeted goals to work toward. It would also, in theory, prevent Congress from lumping all 12 spending bills into a massive omnibus package such as the one passed by House and Senate Democrats last year, but opposed by the GOP. It first forces lawmakers to reckon with some of the traditionally less controversial appropriations bills, those concerning military construction and veterans affairs, agriculture, energy and water, transportation and housing and urban development by the 19th of January. Now, the remaining eight appropriations bills, and there are 12 altogether, they have to be worked out by February 2nd. But members on the right of Johnson's GOP conference, they balked at the bill over its lack of any spending cuts and conservative policy riders. However, uh, it's been um, uh, tacitly approved by Senate leaders, meaning that Johnson's first major act as speaker likely will avert a government shutdown if President Biden signs it. And there really is no way that he can avoid signing it, um, given, uh, given the situation as it stands. Now, looking back to Israel, Hamas, the Department of Defense provided insight into how Hamas uses hospitals as fortresses in Gaza. And they are now presenting what they're describing as clear evidence. Well, the U.S. Department of Defense confirmed on Tuesday that it has intelligence suggesting that Hamas is using hospitals, something that we knew. But now they have convincing evidence Um, to conceal and support military operations and hold hostages. Now the confirmation comes a day after Israel's Defense Forces spokesperson, Rear Admiral uh, Daniel Hagari. He shared a video showing a shaft leading into the ground with the electrical wires that went down about 20 meters and into a tunnel. The tunnel Hagari shared footage of led from the house of a senior terrorist to a bulletproof and explosion proof door showing clear evidence that the tunnels were connected to the uh, uh, the hospital that Hamas used as its base. Uh, Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabina Singh, she told reporters during a briefing earlier today that the Pentagon believes hospitals should be places for people to seek medical treatment and should be protected. We do have information that Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad use some hospitals in the Gaza Strip, including Al-Shifa Hospital, as a way to conceal and support their military operations and hold hostages, she said. They have tunnels underneath these hospitals. She also said Hamas operates a command control node from a Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, uh, where they store weapons and are prepared to uh, respond to Israeli military operations against that facility. I'm just telling you what we as the uh, the intelligence community assess is happening in Gaza City. How Hamas is using these hospitals, she told reporters. uh, But absolutely, we do not want to see a firefight in a hospital where there are innocent civilians. Again, this is precisely what Hamas is counting on, uh, that uh, Israel will be uh, prevented from moving forward and accomplishing their ultimate goal, and that is to remove the threat of Hamas. Another um, interesting development earlier today. Well, Senate Democrats blocked a standalone Israel aid package led by Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas on Tuesday, after a lengthy debate on the chamber floor, Marshall sought unanimous consent for the House's version of the package, which passed the lower chamber of the bipartisan support on November 2nd and would airmark 14.3 billion dollars reallocated from funds meant for the IRS and President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Senate Marshall, um, senators Marshall, Ted Cruz, J.D. Vance, and Mike Lee, they introduced the Senate version last month, but Democrats shot down that effort because the package does not include aid to Ukraine. A handful of Republican senators argued the two emergency aid packages should be split up and voted on separately. Though they spend three fourths of the time telling us why we should fund Ukraine, no one will stand up and say we should not fund Israel now. Marshall said uh, Tuesday in a press conference, no one has an argument for that. They seem to be allergic to the word Israel. Bring the Ukraine funding to the floor. Let's vote on that. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll continue to work our way through uh, the day's headlines. Also in the second hour, a conversation I had uh, last week with Dr. Jessica Lynn Taylor. She is the new president of Multnomah University, now known as Multnomah Campus of Jessup University, shall explain all of that when we return in the 5 o'clock hour.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. Well, a new rule proposed by the Department of Health and Human Services wants to quietly erase the idea of the American family by banning essential biologically descriptive terms such as mother, Father and paternity from the Office of Child Support Services and replace them with more gender neutral words like parentage. The OCSS also suggests getting rid of sex specific pronouns such as his and her and replacing them with the grammatically nonsensical there. As the uh, Federalist Jordan Boyd wrote, a or rather O.C.S.S. recognizes that current law requires the establishment of paternity and requiring genetic testing in contested paternity cases, but claims that no excuse to limit the definition of parent to a child's biological mother and father. Well, good grief. The new mumbo jumbo is hidden within a 10 page pile of bureaucrat Um At this point, the proposed rule is just that it's proposed So, the American people still have until the 27th of this month to weigh in. With their uh, thoughts on the pending change, perhaps it'd be a good time to give uh, Team Biden's OCSS an earful, and you can do so um, by connecting with the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. Well, to call the proposed policy Orwellian is a isn't a stretch. Certain words have certain meaning. The motion of uh, misgendering, by which a person refuses to play along with the gender identity charade by referring to a man as using female. Pronouns is ridiculous on its face and confusing at at uh, the, the least, but it's more than ridiculous. It's Marxist and it's destructive. Recall that the self-described Marxists of Black Lives Matter surreptitiously scrubbed certain language from their website, diminishing the importance of the traditional Western nuclear family. But those grifters only did so because words of their Uh, uh, Radicalism got out and it started to hurt their fundraising capabilities, says the New York Post reported at the time. The group whose co-founder Patrice Cullors has described herself and fellow co-founder Alicia Garza as trained Marxists removed a page titled what we believe that included its public policy positions as well as describing itself as part of the global black family. What were BLM's Marcus try, Marxists trying to do? Well, it's simple. According to the language, they shoved down the memory uh, hole of the Internet. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents and children are comfortable. The website formally read Mark Alexander recently addressed this so-called civil rights issue that's inherent in the battle to promote this larger pathology. I realize, and I'm quoting, I realize school administrators nationwide are constrained by an errant 2020 Supreme Court decision, a classifying deviant sexual pathology as a protected civil right on par with race and ethnicity. That court decision set into motion a litany of... Um, contortionist efforts by the government bureaucracies, including schools and private sector businesses, to accommodate this gender diktat. End quote. As for the OPCC, some Republican lawmakers have had enough of the gender games, at least enough to fire off a sternly worded memo. Senators Marco Rubio, James Langford, Kevin Kramer, Mike Braun, Ted Cruz and Cindy Hyde Smith penned a letter in October condemning the administration for trying to force its don't say dad agenda on American taxpayers. The letter began on September 26, 2023. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services issued a proposed rule that would um, eliminate words like father, mother, and paternity from federal child support regulations and instead replace them with gender neutral alternatives. Your administration's don't-say-dad agenda is not only confusing, it does nothing to help single parents who are struggling to provide for their children. We urge you to rescind the proposed rule, acknowledge the essential role that mothers and fathers play in families, and focus your efforts on more important matters." Indeed, there are far more important matters confronting us than whether someone feels excluded by age-old words such as mother, father, and paternity. But that is the age in which we live. In other news, a Senate committee hearing appeared to be on the brink of a physical altercation on Tuesday as a Republican senator stood up and threatened to fight a labor leader as the committee's chairman. Senator Bernie Sanders tried to play peacemaker. Sir, this is a time. This is a place you can uh, you want to run your mouth. We can uh, uh, we can be two consenting adults and we can finish it here. The GOP senator Um, Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma told Teamsters president Sean O'Brien during a health, education, labor and pensions committee hearing after reading a tweet in which O'Brien said he could uh, take the senator anytime or any place. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. O'Brien responded. You want to do it now? Mullen asked. I would love to do it right now. O'Brien said, prompting Mullen to say, well, stand stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up then, big guy, O'Brien said. Mullen, a former MMA fighter, (laughs) stood up from his chair and seemed to um, set on making his way over to where the Teamsters president was sitting. Stop it. Hold it. No, no, no. Sit down. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, the chairman of the committee, said in an attempt to calm the pair down, you're a U.S. state senator. United States Senator, sit down, Sanders said. Both Mullen and O'Brien asked permission from the, uh, speak, from the, uh, chairman to respond to each other after Mullen sat down, but Sanders denied their request. The two continued to go back and forth for several minutes. They would have come to blows had they not been prevented from doing so. We had another incident in which the former speaker is now being accused of shoving another member, um, and that member is considering, uh, filing Uh, some kind of a complaint, a formal complaint. Uh, Things are spiraling out of control, and self-control is the first thing, apparently, that is being jettisoned. Well, in other news, Kristen uh, Wagoner of Alliance Defending Freedom uh, reported on uh, the fact that over 20,000 outraged petitioners have signed an online campaign uh, taking aim at Macy's iconic Thanksgiving Day Parade. Well, who could be opposed to Macy's iconic Thanksgiving Day Parade Amid allegations that this year's celebration will put a non-binary and transgender extravaganza on display. Those are the words of the Macy's parade organizers. The non-binary and transgender extravaganza on display this Thanksgiving will be brought to you by Macy's during their annual sponsored Thanksgiving Day Parade. The petition, organized by one million moms, reads, unless they are uh, forewarned about it, this year's holiday parade will potentially expose tens of millions of viewers at home to the liberal LGBTQ agenda, end quote. Well, the petition adds that performances in this year's parade will include music from two Broadway musicals, both of which feature transgender and non-binary performers in major roles. Kristen uh, Wagoner, president of the Alliance uh, Defending Freedom, blasted the parade plans, um, telling host Brian Kilmeade Macy's inclusion of the non-binary transgender character in a parade is just another example of an ideological war that's being waged on families and customers are saying they've had enough. But it seems that corporate brands that... We're once trusted, just still aren't getting the message, end quote. I think you're seeing parents stand up, rise up and say we're going to a parent and we expect our family friendly events to truly be family friendly and not teach our kids values that we object to. She went on to add, well, the petition calls out to performers Justin David Sullivan and Alex Newell, who both identify as non-binary. Sullivan, who plays Juliet's non-binary friend May in the musical And Juliet, which is expected to be part of the parade, previously opted out of the Tony Awards to call out gendered categories set major awards shows. Well, you get the idea. The New York City Parade broadcast by NBC has been a traditional holiday season kickoff for millions of Americans since the 1920s. And it can truly be said that the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is not your grandmother's parade anymore. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu offered a uh, dire warning to America that it may be next if the IDF doesn't decimate Hamas during an interview, not during the interview, but he made the comment during an interview. We have to win not only for our sake, but for the sake of the Middle East, for the sake of the Arab neighbors. You know what? For the sake of Gazans. Uh, who've been held by this dark tyranny that has brutalized and brought them nothing but bloodshed and poverty and misery, he said on Monday. We have to win to protect Israel. We have to win to safeguard the Middle East. We have to win for the sake of the civilized world. That's the battle we're fighting, and it's being waged right now. There is no substitute for that victory, end quote. If we don't win now, then Europe is next, and you're next, and we have to win, he later added. Netanyahu stressed that our fight is your fight and that there is no substitute for victory. Well, Google Maps is one of the most uh, popular and widely used navigation apps in the world, but it's not resting on its laurels. The tech giant recently announced that it's giving it a massive AI upgrade with five new features. Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, I'll tell you about this new direction and these new features that is um, supposed to leave you less likely in an open field somewhere having followed their directions when you're trying to get to somewhere else. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, we're going to share a conversation I had last week with the president of Multnomah University, the seventh president, Jessica Lynd Taylor. Dr. Taylor is the uh, current president. We'll talk about the um, collaboration between Jessup University and Multnomah. Uh, and which is now known as Multnomah Campus of Jessup University. That's coming up later in the five o'clock hour. So if you didn't have an opportunity to hear that conversation last week, we played in the first hour. Um, we'll share it with you in the second hour today. Well, I was talking about Google Maps. It's one of the most popular and widely used navigation apps in the world, but it's not resting on its laurels. Uh, The tech giant recently announced that it's giving up, uh, giving it a massive AI upgrade with a few new features. One of the most impressive new features is immersive view, which lets you see your route from the street level in 3D. That means you can get a realistic and detailed view of your surroundings, landmarks, directions before you uh, even start your trip. You can also explore different places and see how they look in real time. The feature is especially useful for unfamiliar or complex areas where you might otherwise get lost or confused, which is you know, pretty much anywhere. Another cool upgrade is Google Maps Search, which uses AI to help you find relevant locations based on your preferences, needs, and context. Uh, For example... Just thinking about the old map, you know, you opened it up, you found where you were going, and that's what you did. If you're looking for a restaurant, Google Maps will show you options that match your taste, budget, and availability. It also uses user-submitted photos and reviews to give you a better idea of what to expect. Then there's the Google Maps navigation. It's also getting an AI boost with improved lane guidance and traffic information. You'll be able to see which lanes you need to be in to avoid missing your exit or uh, turn and what lanes will be, uh, look like ahead of time. Of course, how you manage all of that while you're driving is a whole nother question. You also get real-time updates on road conditions, accidents, and congestion, so you can plan your route accordingly. Google Maps will also suggest alternative routes if there are faster or easier ways to reach your destination. Uh, if you own an electric vehicle, you'll be happy, and that's, you know, two or three of you, you'll be happy to know that Google Maps is adding more information on EV charging stations on its app. The app will show you uh, where the nearest charging stations are, what types of chargers they have, how fast they can charge your battery, and when they... Uh, <clears throat> When they were last used, Uh, you're also going to be able to see if the charging station is available or occupied so you don't waste your time and energy trying to get there and find out it's not available. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, as part of the revamp, Google renamed its search show with live view feature to lens in map. Uh, This feature uses AI to recognize the label, the objects and places in your camera view, such as ATMs, transit stations, restaurants and so on. You can also ask the AI to tell you more about these places and how to get there. It will give you the best answers depending on what you want to know and where you are. It also uses AI to uh, overlay the information and directions on the camera view using Augmented reality. Well, Google Maps is undoubtedly one of the most useful and innovative apps out there, and its uh, new AI features will make it even more so. However, there's also a downside to using Google Maps, and that is the amount of personal data that Google collects from your using it. Well, Google uses this data to improve its services, but also to target ads to influence behavior and sell to third parties. There are no free lunches from big tech, and Google Maps is no exception. So remember, nothing comes for free. Google Maps also collects a lot of data from you, which is uh, uses for its own purposes. So be mindful of your privacy settings, what you share with Google. Google Maps is a great app, but it's not perfect. Of course, nothing is. Well, a charity for a disease that can uh, cause serious pain and pregnancy complications for females has appointed a transgender woman to be the CEO Endometriosis South Coast is described as an inclusive charity set up to support those diagnosed with endometriosis. They recently announced that Steph Richards, a transgender man, a woman, I'm never quite sure, uh, who uses she, he pronouns, she, her pronouns, was named the new CEO of the charity. The announcement included a picture uh, and a quote that uh, read, Isn't it ridiculous that I've got to my 40s before any medical professionals even mentioned endometriosis? Endometriosis. Of course, if you're a man, you would anyway uh, his her appointment to the position was met with outrage from women's groups. Let Women Speak founder Kelly J. Keene said the announcement ignored women and took issue with the language used in the ESC online post. Everyone has lost their collective minds, she wrote. The losers are women who suffer from endometriosis, rather, who have to rely on a charity that won't call them women, but people, but who will call a man a woman. Keene also called the move by ESC an absolute disaster and an insult to women who suffer from endometriosis. I think it's doubly insulting that they will use female language for him, but not for a sufferer of the condition, she added. Caroline Fisk, the director of uh, Conservatives for Women, called it an insulting appointment. It's an absolutely shocking appointment. There's just disbelief and despair among the entire community, she went on to say. Well, it's a slimmer feel, but it's the same story, as former President Donald Trump remains the commanding frontrunner for the Republican nomination, with nine weeks to go until the first votes are cast. Now, someone suggested that that may be the case because he is so preoccupied with his legal challenges, he's not being seen or heard in the political setting, and that's to his advantage. People remember what he did and not who he is and what he says and does in political settings. Well, Senator Tim Scott's suspension of the White House campaign on on Sunday, rather, Came two weeks after former Vice President Mike Pence departed the 2024 GOP race and four lesser known candidates who failed to make the debate stage have also dropped out as a Republican field that once included over a dozen contenders keeps shrinking with the January 15th Iowa caucuses, which lead off uh, the Republican presidential nomination calendar fast approaching. Trump retains dominating double digit leads over his nomination rivals in the latest survey in the early voting states and holds even larger massive advantages in national polls. The overarching question going forward is if the smaller field of candidates will allow one of them, one of the remaining contenders, to make it a competitive race against Trump as the primary calendar progresses. Longtime Republican consultant Dave Carney, a veteran of numerous presidential campaigns, emphasized that there's no way to spin this other than it's good for good news for Nikki Haley. We'll see if she can take advantage of that. End quote. Haley, the former two term South Carolina governor who served as ambassador to the United Nations during the Trump administration, is battling two term Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for second place in the GOP nominating race far behind Donald Trump. The mother of an American imprisoned in China for over 10 years and facing execution is calling on President Biden to take action during his upcoming meeting with Chinese President Xi to secure her son's release for a crime she and many others say he did not commit. President Biden, you need to please say Mark's name and to tell him Xi uh what do you want to let him go? A Catherine Swyden, a 73-year-old mother of Mark Swyden, told Fox News Digital on Monday, the 11-year anniversary of the day her son was wrongfully arrested by Chinese authorities. We have the people, we have the military, we have the money. What's the problem? Mark Swyden was 38 years old when he went to China on business looking for flooring for construction work in November of 2012. He was arrested after his driver and translator were allegedly found with drugs. A United Nations report determined that Swyden, who was has no history of drugs was not in possession of drugs on his person or in his hotel room and records show he was not even in china at the time of the alleged offense the un report said that the 11 other people arrested with swiden as part of the uh, Uh, alleged trafficking ring were unable to identify him and that the conviction was based on his visiting a factory that had once been used to manufacture methamphetamine swiden's mother told fox news digital she has no confidence that biden and the state department will be able to secure her son's release during wednesday's visit and bases that lack of confidence on communications she's received from government officials who are sympathetic but unable to give her any concrete answers on where things stand with her son A trio of former professional athletes are throwing their support behind independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to take the White House. NBA legend and 1992 Dream Team Olympian John Stockton, Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame member Ken uh, Rudigers, and three-time North American um, enduro mountain biking champion Kyle Warner are all endorsing Kennedy for president. The athlete said... um, They like to cut of they like the cut of Kennedy's jib. All three pointed to what they say are the independent candidates. um, Geniusness, honesty and openness. Geniusness. Is that a word? Anyway, geniusness. Uh, His openness to conversations about policies as reasons why they support him. Stockton said he believes Kennedy has been put on this planet for just this moment in time and that there's a real need for him and his leadership. In addition to Rudiger's Stockton and Warner, Kennedy has uh, secured the endorsements of several other athletes, including New York Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers and surfing legend Kelly Slater. Kennedy has been gaining ground as he uh, mounts his independent challenge to Biden, with a recent poll showing him outperforming both the current and former presidents among young Americans in swing states. A major New York law firm told Fox News Digital it expects to sue a number of universities for the alleged violation of Jewish students' civil rights, while demanding immediate remedial changes and financial penalties. Students are coming to us because they are afraid for their physical safety. Mark Ressler, a... um, a partner at the law firm who is readying the lawsuits against the universities said. Wrestler told Fox News his investigations proceeded the, um, uh, or yes, proceeded the October 7th Hamas terror attacks and will allege that some universities have a double standard when it comes to taking action against Jewish civil rights abuses while tackling civil rights concerns from other minority groups. We will be alleging in these lawsuits and will be proving in court that the schools were ac- acutely aware of the dire situation for Jew Students on the campuses. They knew about the anti Jewish harassment and they looked the other way and engaged in what the law describes as deliberate indifference. They knew they had to act. Students are begging them to act, and the school did absolutely nothing, he said. Universities the firm is um, targeting include Harvard, Cornell, Columbia, New York University, MIT, Stanford, University of Pennsylvania, and UC Berkeley. We've got news coming up uh, at the top of the hour. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening
1: to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation I had last week with Dr. Jessica Lynn Taylor, the president of Multnomah University, their seventh president. She's going to join us to talk about changes at Multnomah on Jessup University and Multnomah University's partnership or collaboration and the new name Multnomah Campus of Jeff- Jessup University. That's coming up in our next couple of segments. I had that conversation with Dr. Taylor last week, but uh, it ran in the first hour of the program. Uh, So we thought uh, for those who listened to the second hour who may want to uh, know what's happening at Multnomah, this would be your opportunity to hear from uh, the president and she will retain her position as president of the Multnomah campus. That's coming up the next couple of segments. Well, a columnist, Liz Peake, put it this way. President Biden's mental impairment is one reason to dread his upcoming meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in San Francisco. Now, I assume she's referring to his age. But another is mounting evidence that the president is compromised. If indeed the president and his family took in millions of dollars from government affiliated entities in China, as it appears they did, we can be certain the details of those transactions are known to Xi and can be used to persuade Biden to adopt the party line. The Communist Party line, that is. She goes on to write that at the least Biden will most likely avoid challenging Xi on the critical role Beijing plays in poisoning tens of thousands of Americans every year with fentanyl and their support for Iran backed Hamas. Rather than hammer China's president over his financing of Putin's war crimes in Ukraine, his lies about the Wuhan virus or the planned spy base in Cuba, Biden will stick to surface turf, uh, safe turf, Like begging Xi to expand his country's commitment to climate change. Xi will respond with platitudes and then go about building coal-fired power plants at a feverish pace. In return, Biden will commit the U.S. to even more damaging regulations of our own carbon emissions. Biden cannot afford to ruffle Xi's notoriously delicate feathers. Instead, the entire summit will serve Xi's need to demonstrate he's more powerful than Joe Biden. Once again, the U.S. president and his team will ignore this reality. China is in trouble, and they need us more than we need them. How do we know how the conversation will go? Well, because that was the script when the two leaders last met in Bali a year ago. The readout of that meeting from the White House highlighted Biden's push for cooperation on climate change, as did the readout from the Chinese side. To be fair, Biden did emphasize that the U.S. opposes any unilateral changes to the status quo regarding Taiwan, but he approached other hot topics obliquely. Uh, mildly uh, mildly criticizing the example, uh, uh, for example, Beijing's non-market economic practices and raising Russia's brutal war against Ukraine and Russia's irresponsible threats of nuclear use. The humiliation this time around um, has already begun, with Beijing keeping the White House on tinderhooks for weeks about whether the encounter would even take place. As innumerable U.S. officials pressed for the summit, Biden looked um, desperate, which is, of course, exactly what the Chinese wanted. Xi needs to look victorious in his relationship with the U.S. The dictator has brutally taken control of China's economy, and it's not going well. Fearing an emerging and powerful business class uh, who might threaten his dominance, Xi cracked down on tech entrepreneurs and other wealthy Chinese, rolling their um, their confidence. He also orchestrated a devastating shutdown during COVID, which uh, alarmed his citizens. Consumer spending has yet to recover. China's growth has slowed dramatically. Exports are falling and foreign films are fleeing the country for the first time in modern history. In the second quarter, direct investment by foreign companies into China plummeted 87% compared to the year before, the largest drop since 1998. And last year, household wealth fell in China for the first time in two decades. Youth unemployment is at a record highs and consumer sentiment is in the gutter. Moreover, China's problems will be compounded in coming years by the approach of a demographic cliff. The population, thanks to the long-time one-child policy, is already in decline. Xi also delivered a critical blow against his country's property development industry, which had fueled growth for decades and grown to some 30 percent of the economy. In 2021, Xi proclaimed housing is for living in and not for speculation and turned a real estate boom into a bust. Now the government is pulling out all stops to revive the deflating sector. G needs a win, and one-upping President Biden will suffice. We'll see when the transcripts are made available, if that was the case. Well, King Charles III, who celebrates his 75th birthday uh, today, has faced the daunting task of following in the footsteps of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, a beloved, globally admired world figure for 70 years. Notwithstanding initial concerns and criticisms from various quarters during his first year on the throne, Charles has demonstrated the ability to inspire his people. He steadied the ship against a turbulent geopolitical situation and served as an an able ambassador for his nation abroad. Official polling shows that as far under, um, so far under his tenure, the monarchy remains popular, notwithstanding even Harry and Meghan Markle's best efforts. Well, adults are sedentary for an average of nine and a half hours every day, studies have shown. And all that sitting could be putting people's health at risk. That's not really new news, but researchers from the University of College London and the University of Sydney found that replacing just a few moments of sitting with any other type of activity, even sleeping or standing. Yes, you heard me. Even sleeping or standing can improve cardiovascular health. In six separate studies that included over 15,000 people from five countries, participants wore trackers to measure their activity level and heart health over the course of a typical 24-hour day. The more vigorous activities correlated to greater heart health benefits, the researchers found. Again, no surprise there. But even standing and sleeping had better cardiovascular effects than sitting. Sitting. When participants swapped out sitting for as little as five minutes of moderate or vigorous activity, there was a tangible positive impact on their heart health. Well, the Biden administration, through the State Department specifically, is reportedly considering issuing a waiver to Iran that would allow access to another $10 billion worth of previously frozen cash, this time held in Iraq. This alarming development comes after the president, the administration, and the days before Iran-backed Hamas terrorists launched the October 7th slaughter of Israelis, unfroze billions of dollars for Iran as part of a questionable prisoner swap arrangement. Since that deal was made, Iranian proxies have continued to launch attacks at Israel as well as the U.S. troops in the Middle East, wounding dozens of American service members. Biden State Department spokesman Matt Miller declined to comment on reports they were considering unlocking another $10 billion for Iran. Biden has already enriched the Iranian regime to the tune of $100 billion since taking office. Well, after San Francisco was magically cleaned up ahead of the Xi Jinping visit, Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom says, I know folks say, oh, they're just cleaning up this place because all these fancy leaders are coming into town. That's true because it is a fact. Um, Got that um, residence of big cities beset by crime, homelessness and the breakdown of public order. If you want your streets cleaned up and your sidewalks free of human feces and hypodermic needles and drug paraphernalia, the tent cities of homeless people removed graffiti painted over and all kinds of high speed beautification efforts. All you need to do is host a major international conference featuring the president and the dictator who runs China Now, how do you get a major international conference to be hosted by Los Angeles, Oakland, Detroit, Camden, St. Louis, Baltimore, Cleveland? It's an open question, but one worth pursuing. Up next, a conversation I had last week with Dr. Jessica Lynn Taylor. She's the Seventh president of Multnomah University. But there are big changes that have already come to Multnomah. We'll explain in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may have heard, big changes are coming, well, have come to Multnomah University. But first, Multnomah announced the official appointment of its seventh president, Jessica Taylor. Uh, Dr. Taylor has served as interim president since April of this year. Dr. Taylor has a history with Multnomah, first as a student of Multnomah's Master of Counseling program, then as a member of the Board of Trustees, as Multnomah's Vice President of uh, Diversity and Inclusive Development, and most recently as interim president. And as you may have heard, Multnomah University has entered into a new chapter of its storied history, Multnomah University announced a groundbreaking partnership with Jessup University to be renamed Multnomah Campus of Jessup University. It's a new chapter indeed. We'll we'll get to all of that, but first I want to welcome Dr. Jessica Taylor as she joins us for the first time. Welcome, Dr. Taylor, and congratulations. Thank you so much, Georgie, and thanks for having me. It's a delight to have you. Well, this has been a very challenging season to serve as president at Multnomah. So first, let me ask you, uh, let me thank you, I should say, uh, for staying the course and leading our beloved university into safe waters. Tell us a little bit about your journey.
3: Absolutely. Well, as you said, I started as interim president on April 20th, so it's been a little bit over six months in the position. But yes, we think we have navigated out of troubled waters into much brighter days. So it's been a lot of challenge, but our faculty, staff and students have done this together as a collaborative effort. And we're really excited for the days ahead.
2: Well, I'm happy to hear you say that because I think a lot of people are wringing their hands or not sure how to interpret what's happened at Multnomah. And I'm hoping that we can clarify some of that in our conversation today. I just wanted to mention that no single city has been a greater, uh, seen a greater proportion of its colleges struggle financially than Portland. Merrillhurst University shut its doors in 2018. That was followed by Oregon College of Arts and Crafts in 2019. Concordia University shuttered its doors in 2020. And Multnomah, an historically independent institution, announced on Tuesday that it's going to become a satellite campus of Jessup University, a Christian institution that's located about 600 miles away in Rockland, California. Now, this strategic partnership, this collaboration with Jessup was historic and unexpected, at least for onlookers. What drove this move to partner with Jessup? Give us a little bit of that backstory, if you will.
3: Absolutely. So I think that we've had a lot of financial challenges, as have our sister schools in the area and just Christian higher education in general. And I was looking for a way to not end up like one of those statistics and Mm -hmm. to not add long lists of closures, especially sudden closures. And so we looked from the very beginning of my presidency for mergers and acquisitions, partnerships. And basically wanted to come with open hands and say the business model of so much of higher education is not working across the industry. And it is particularly difficult to be a faith-based institution in the heart of Portland. But we love the heart of Portland. We love serving. We think that Christian higher education needs a place, especially in a place like Portland. And so then we look for ways to humbly say to other people, are you doing this better than we are in the business model? You have Uh, better financial strength than we do? Do you offer different programs for our students? I think often people think we have to do it ourselves. If you want it done right, do it yourself. And we really came with an attitude of, we don't do it the best. Let's look across the kingdom of God for like-minded partners that could do something and teach us. And so there was really a humble posture to say, let's stop trying to solve our financial problems by grabbing more students, just adding more programs or crossing our fingers. Let's actually try to disrupt the business model that I believe is broken.
2: Well, Multnomah is now going to be or is referred to as Multnomah Campus of Jessup University. Will you explain how this partnership will work? Absolutely. We're really excited about it. So what it looks like is that in this transition
3: with our students before we end this semester on December 15th, is we will have our students in a teach Out program or basically be able to keep the majority of the faculty and staff around them, keep our campus, keep pieces of our name, keep our logo, keep our mascot, all of those beautiful things. And so for students, what it should look like is They show up for class on Monday, the same that they did on Friday, Uh, which was really one of our, our main goals is that students would not have an interruption to their education. Eventually, they will have a degree that has Jessup's name on it right alongside Multnomah's, And so that, again, allows us the financial stability that we've been looking for, but also a lot of expanded degree options and an ability to expand what we offer here in Portland as well in areas like tech and healthcare. Bible and um, mental health, just all kinds of different areas that we can expand. So it should be really great for our students, and our goal is to make that seamless for them so that they can stay at Multnomah as Multnomah Lions, but just be powered
2: by Jessup. Yeah, yeah. Now, Multnomah and Jessup were both established in the 1930s. They have remarkably similar histories equipping students. Can you tell us a bit about Jessup University, uh, which listeners may not know is located in Northern California?
3: Absolutely. So Jessup has been dedicated to Christ-centered higher education as well since 1939. We were birthed in 1936. So again, have that very similar pioneering history, have a similar care for the Word of God and the deity of Jesus, love our students. And so there was just a lot of synergy in that place. They have a Rockland campus as well as a San Jose campus. And mm-hmm. so Portland, will be another location that they are adding. And we think that that's a really strategic regional kind of triangle, actually, where we could even expand beyond that in the future. And Jessup has the same trailblazing and kind of pioneering spirit that Multnomah did to serve the local church as well.
2: Now, Multnomah University managed to preserve much of the original mission and values of its founders. As the motto used to be, if it's Bible you want, you want Multnomah. Well, in light of this new association, what aspects of the old Multnomah uh, do we expect to see uh, preserved and what aspects do you see changing? Thank you for asking that question. So I think that the founder's vision of Bible being
3: central is still very central. If you come talk to our students, if you come talk to our faculty, we have a robust Bible faculty, and I think our biblical education is amazing. So really what we've done is to say, yes, if it's Bible you want, we absolutely still want you to come to Multnomah. We think that this is the best place to get that education. But we realized that over time, it had only become about the Bible and not necessarily translated into culture to also become about Jesus. So we now say in our mission statement that we are compelled by the love of Christ, and in that we integrate biblical wisdom, so still that that real foundation of our, our biblical integration with academic and professional excellence, and then we say we want to humbly engage in God's redemptive work in the world. So I think it's expanded from the Bible, not walking away from it, but saying if it, we don't worship Scripture. However, we use Scripture to do God's redemptive work, to change us, to compel us by love, to be disciples. So I actually think it's a beautiful marriage of Old and New Testament, of what Multnomah was and what Multnomah really can be, to be very real answers to a very hurting world, instead of only a training ground for people that would only go into traditional ministry type of vocation. Mm-hmm. Now we see ministry in the workplace and in the the secular
2: field as well. Inside Higher Ed reported back in August that Multnomah was dropping its longstanding requirement that students sign a statement of faith. Was that an effort to raise enrollment, to bring in additional tuition dollars, or does it represent a move away from Multnomah's historic mission?
3: Yeah, I think that there was definitely, mostly a faith component about that. And what I mean by that is we realized that because of that Multnomah, I'll call it the Multnomah bubble, uh, then sometimes we weren't really preparing everyone, and people were at different journey points in their faith and couldn't necessarily be honest about that. Is what we realized. We knew that there would be no immediate growth in enrollment. We we did not expect that to, to have a financial incentive at the time um, potentially over time but we knew that that would not be an immediate solution but we also recognize that many of our sister schools that we might want to partnership already have what's known as open enrollment so already we're accepting christians and non-christians while having a statement of faith for all of their faculty and staff and potentially having code of conduct requirements for their students and so we also did recognize that we needed to be poised to partner better with folks that accepted Christians and non-Christians in their student body. And I think that we were.
2: How does that translate on in campus life in terms of individuals whose lifestyle might conflict with a biblical view on a particular subject? Has, does that uh, open the door to controversy? Or how do you see the challenges that, you know, go without saying that the culture might present with students coming through Multnomah in its new configuration?
3: Yeah, it's really important to us to offer what I call informed consent so each student would know that we are a Christian institution, that everyone on the faculty and staff, all the employees are Christians. We sign the doctrinal statement, statement of faith, and they sign basically community covenant agreements, which say, regardless of what I believe, regardless of what my lifestyle choices are, while I'm a student of Multnomah, I am committed to living life in this community based on biblical standards. And so we have... Uh, Conduct procedures for when that doesn't happen that we really hope are redemptive, Uh, but that has been a main focus is making sure that students understand that if you come to Multnomah, we are welcoming you into this space, but we're welcoming you into a Christ-centered space so that the culture doesn't doesn't influence Multnomah in a negative way, but that Multnomah has the chance to influence the culture in a Mm -hmm. positive way
2: hmm. I'm sure it's a very long story, but how did we get here? Some might assume, in fact, I'm getting a signal I need to take a break. But when we come back, I want to ask you how we arrived at this point, because it's not a story that began with your presidency. It really predates that by quite a few years. So we'll get into that in just a moment. Again, we are talking this afternoon with the new president of Multnomah University and under the new name, Dr. Jessica Lynn Taylor. We'll continue in a moment. So stay with us.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing my conversation with Dr. Jessica Lynn Taylor. She is the president of Multnomah University, uh, currently named by the new association with Jessup University, Multnomah Campus of Jessup University. Now, one of the things I wanted to clarify was that this development did not happen uh, within the few weeks that you became president. This was a challenge that Multnomah has been facing for quite some time. It's probably a very long story. But how did we get here? What was the bottom line for this partnership and transition that we're now witnessing? I think what put us in
3: the position was multiple different factors, one of which being the financial decline, the decline in enrollment that we're seeing across higher education. We had significant leadership changes over the last several years that have been difficult for our 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 community to transition through as well. And so when we came, I think actually we were looking at our mission statement and saying, what is our mission? And are we still supposed to move forward? Is there a place still in the kingdom of God for Multnomah? I think it was really brave of us to ask that question, Mm -hmm. continuing to fight forward, demanding that God would have us stay alive and and thrive even, but we asked. And so with a group of the board, a faculty Staff representation, we got together looking at that mission and actually started looking at our history, uh, specifically about our founders, and and looked into what was it that was the heart that we didn't want to lose, that was worth contending for no matter what. And we really grounded on the founder's heart, actually, to bring us into a place to say what would be next for us.
2: Multnomah's uh, recently announced four departments, the School of Bible, a biblical seminary, School of Professional Studies, and an online university. Will that change under the new partnership? It'll probably shift around. But the amazing thing is that in a
3: lot of these type of situations, uh, on the legal side, especially what you have is you have a lot of loss. And we are not losing our seminary, our grad school, or our undergrad school. So we will have all of those represented. They may be under actually more schools as we expand. Uh, but each of those schools and the distinctives will remain, which is
2: a miracle. Yeah, it really is. I mean, this whole thing really is quite remarkable if you understand the challenges that many um, uh, schools of higher education are, are currently uh, facing. Now, how will this collaborative partnership impact your role as president and that of the faculty and staff?
3: So I will become the campus president of Noma campus of Jessup University uh, as we transition. Faculty and staff will shift around underneath uh, some of the leadership of Jessup University, which we are already uh, so excited, buzzing with excitement as they reach out to us, as they are praying for us, as they have really been laboring right alongside us to, to move this deal along. It's actually a beautiful picture of kingdom-minded uh, collaboration of people that are saying, Hey, I might take on more work so that you have less. I might pave a way or open a door for you so that we can do this in the kingdom. So we're just a buzz on both campuses, I think, with the possibility of the collaboration. Yeah.
2: Will there be local independence in Multnomah's operation under your leadership at all, or is it all collaborative and all connected? I think it's all going to be
3: collaborative, and that's really what we would like, especially with what we would call a centralized or shared service model. We have struggled for years to be able to pay people well and to be able to have the robustness of a fully independent institution in things like our business office. And so to be able to have some help and support with that will be great. But Jessup is really committed to making sure that Multnomah maintains her distinctive. It's a distinctive Jessup does not have. It strengthens um, Jessup to be able to have the biblical uh, trainings that we, we have, to be able to have the seminary that we have. And so they're actually really looking forward to expanding and learning from us. We're looking forward to expanding and learning from them. But keeping the distinctive is a really important piece. It's unity in diversity, not that we all become the same thing, but that we have the think of things as one school.
2: Well again it's uh, such an innovation that uh, to put together this kind of partnership and for both uh, universities then to have the opportunity to thrive as opposed to simply dwindling and fading into mm-hmm. history which would have um, very likely been one scenario um, that that could yeah. have happened. Now this mm-hmm. collaboration from what i understand will expand Multnomah's academic portfolio it will include Innovative programs and in technology, as you mentioned earlier, mental health, healthcare, and beyond. Can you just uh, talk a bit more about that so we have some idea of what Multnomah, this campus, will be offering that is different from what um, you might have uh, had before?
3: Yeah, so again, we will have the biblical foundation and the, what we call the Bible core. So each and every student will still go to chapel, will still have the Bible Core as the foundation of their education, whether they're in a psychology, business, tech degree, part of what we want to do is to expand into new partnerships within our city to impact Portland and really this whole region, but to say that Christians need to be in the marketplace. And so as we have students who are requesting new majors and uh, excited about new jobs that will pay them well, that will allow them to support ministries and allow them to, to grow and stay in the city, we're really excited that that expansiveness, again, still grounded with the biblical education piece, will be able to expand beyond what we, what we offer right now.
2: Yeah. Uh, how might we pray for you as the campus president and for the Multnomah staff and faculty uh, as it uh, transitions, at least in our hearts and minds, to Multnomah campus mm-hmm. at Jessup University?
3: You can really pray for some of our people are grieving, and I think that that, that we lament the fact that I think so many of us uh, in higher education are in this space, that we can lament what we lost. And so please be praying for my community, as I think especially our alumni are struggling. Mm-hmm. The one, my alma mater, gone. I, I can proclaim boldly that it's not, that we are really excited. But in alignment with a biblical history, we will die give everything away, come back to life in a really beautiful way. And so I hope that where people can get is to see the redemptive arc of what God allowed to remain, and that people will see that that was the best part of us that got to remain and be excited about that to join the vision. But for now, we're going to be in a season of, of lament and of grief for some of our folks, excitement for other folks. So just please pray that we would have love and empathy and we'd be compelled by the love of Christ as we connect with each and every person, regardless of how they're feeling about the change. Yeah. Change is hard.
2: Yeah, it is hard. But, you know, these ministries don't belong to us. They belong to him. And as mm-hmm. he men. moves things around and orchestrates the affairs of men, we just look on in awe. And I think we would do well to just anticipate God is is about something at Multnomah. And he is has not abandoned that project. He will continue to move forward and to train uh, leaders in in uh, the Christian community and Multnomah will have an impact in our community. And we need to pray um, that we would be able to see the fruit of that and whatever he's calling us to do to support the ministry, that we would step forward to do that. Well, I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to talk with us, to introduce you to the KPDQ listening audience for those who have yet to Uh, to meet you or to hear your voice. Uh, We're grateful for your leadership, and please know that you have an open invitation uh, in the days ahead if you'd like to communicate what's happening at Multnomah, um, because we care about the university, its students, its faculty, its president, and we want to see you succeed.
3: That's amazing. Thank you so much for your support and
2: prayers, Georgine. You are so welcome. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Thank you. Again, Dr. Jessica Lynn Taylor, Multnomah University's seventh president, and she is overseeing a transition there. And as uh, she mentioned, it's challenging for those who are used to things being one way for them to change. But God often requires us to change. So our focus isn't on what's familiar, what we know, but on him. Multnomah campus at Jessup University, I should say of Jessup University is the new name for Multnomah and there are big things afoot so keep them in your prayers.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, returning to some of the day's headlines, is speaker Johnson picking up where speaker McCarthy left off? Some are asking, well soon we'll see whether house speaker Johnson learned anything from the experience of his predecessor that Lawmaker Kevin McCarthy was booted from his speakership last month for failing to follow through on his promise to bring 12 individual appropriations bills to the House floor rather than, um, well, ramming everything through in a single massive and infuriating omnibus bill. Well, Johnson has unveiled a two-step short-term spending proposal that would keep money flowing to federal agencies into early next year in a bid to stave off a partial government shutdown late next week. The Wall Street Journal reports the measure wouldn't impose spending cuts, and it also wouldn't implement tougher anti-immigration rules at the U.S.-Mexico border, which some Republicans have said was critical to get their support. If this doesn't sound like a belt-tightening series of individual bills, that's because it isn't. Johnson called this proposal a necessary step, but vowed that things will be different next year. The Budget Control Act of 1974 spells out that uh, in this um into law, Johnson said, referring to the proper congressional budgeting process, and nobody's following it here for years. And that's why we have the economic crisis we have that combined with binomics. Well, he did manage earlier in the day to convince his detractors, and we'll continue to follow that story. A national climate alarmist assessment with uh, much fanfare. The Biden administration is releasing the latest report on the global climate, officially known as the National Climate Assessment. Now, of course, the sole purpose of the report is to continue to push climate alarmism with solely um, political solutions. The administration is playing up all the usual woke nonsense regarding the report by focusing on the supposed disparate impact of climate change on favored minority groups. We're always sort of the scapegoat, demonstrating that this assessment is more about getting people to believe in their favored narrative rather than resting on actual science. Vox reports that the administration is including an accompanying podcast art series and even a poetry anthology compiled by two poet laureates and a climate scientist to sell it to the American people. Fear mongering is um, in order to justify more authoritarian measures is the real motivation behind this report. I wish I could have made that rhyme. But, of course, that's uh, what the administration is doing to try to talk you into it. Well, the half trillion dollar cost of illegal aliens in the country. How much is Joe Biden's immigration crisis costing American taxpayers? Well, according to a new interim report released by the House Republicans, the welfare cost for illegal aliens is roughly four hundred and fifty one billion dollars. Every day, millions of American taxpayer dollars are spent on costs directly associated with immigration and the unprecedented crisis at the southwestern border, sparked by the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas' policies, the report notes. Open border proponents have long claimed that illegal aliens are a net economic good for the country and whatever they uh, cost is recouped uh, in them paying taxes. However, the report states the cost is not being recouped. Only a small fraction is ever recouped from the taxes paid by those in the country initially illegally, with the rest falling on the shoulders of American citizens and lawful residents. Medical costs are a significant factor. Dr. Robert Trinshell, chief executive officer of the Yuma Regional Medical Hospital, says that immigrants often require three times the amount of human resources to resolve their cases and provide them with a safe discharge. Well, Mayorkas has avoided being impeached, although the effort has Certainly been there. In a 209-201 vote, the House decided against impeaching Homeland Security Secretary on Monday. The impeachment resolution has been raised back uh, uh, in May by firebrand Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene over his uh, willful admittance of border crossers in violation of the Secure Fence Act of 2006. Greene's impeachment effort failed when eight Republicans joined Democrats to block it. Following the vote, the frustrated Greens slammed her Republican colleagues by saying, I'm outraged. I can assure you that Republican voters will be extremely angry that um, they've done this. And while Mayorkas deserves impeachment, even if the Senate then ousted him, It would likely do little to change the Biden administration's de facto open border policy. Also, Green is known for little other than throwing rhetorical bombs and simply lacks the respect of the party, which is needed in order to get significant actions like an impeachment realized. Finally, keeping Mayorkas as the face of Joe Biden's border malfeasance serves as a political liability for his reelection bid. We'll see whether or not it translates in just that way. Well, Hamas used Palestinian civilians and continues to use them as human shields, counting on Western governments to pressure Israel into stopping its campaign against the Jihad terrorist organization. The latest example of this scenario is the Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, where intense fighting has uh, surrounded its grounds and Israeli forces have placed the hospital under siege. That's because Hamas built its headquarters in a tunnel complex beneath the hospital, all in order to propagate the claim that Israel is targeting civilians, about whom or for whom Hamas appears to have very little real And genuine concern. Unfortunately, uh, much of the left media dutifully reports it as if the uh, villains are the Israeli forces for daring to lay siege to the hospital and root out Hamas terrorists. The White House knows this is the case, yet Joe Biden's response was predictably disgraceful. It's my hope and expectation that there will be less intrusive action relative to the hospital, he said. The hospital must be protected. Very frustrating. Well, Target is inviting more shoplifting. We don't tell big retailers how to do their jobs. They shouldn't tell us how to do ours. So said Sacramento County Sheriff Jim Cooper in an ex post brimming with frustration. The retail giant is tuck friendly Uh, swimsuits and other wokish wearables seemed genuinely interested in curbing the shoplifting problem that cost it more than one point two billion dollars this past year alone. But no, instead, Target seems uh, more concerned with bad publicity than stopping bad actors from stealing its stuff and costing you more. That is, if you're still shopping at Target. I can't make this stuff up, said Sheriff Cooper. Recently, we tried to help Target. Our property crimes detectives and sergeants were contacted numerous times by Target to help them with shoplifters, mostly who were known transients. We coordinated with them and set up an operation and then... We're told that uh, by their headquarters of regional security that we could not contact uh, contact suspects inside the store. We could not uh, handcuff suspects in the store. And if we arrested someone, they wanted us to process them outside behind the store. Apparently, Target would rather encourage thieves than risk a law and orderly social media post. For this, it will get what it deserves. Uh, So will its customers, unfortunately. Well, anything a woman can do, a man can do better, right? Well, wrong, and demonstrably so. Take childbearing, for example. We've yet to meet a man who can, well, carry a woman's water on this front. But that didn't stop a charitable organization named Endometrius South Coast from proudly announcing that Steph Richards, a transgender dude who demands female pronouns, was its new CEO. If you're unfamiliar with endometriosis, it's a disease that affects the lining of the uterus, which is a reproductive organ that women have and men don't. As for Richards, he describes himself as intersectional feminist and human rights activist. And he he's uh, pictured on an ESC social media post alongside a quote that reads, isn't it ridiculous that I've got to my 40s before any medical professionals even mentioned endometriosis, which, of course, he could never actually have. It sure is ridiculous, Steph, but not for the reasons you might think. Conservative women rightly called it a shocking appointment, while Richards trolled back enjoying uh, conservatives uh, falling apart. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. We've got two guest hosts I know you will enjoy. They'll focus much of their conversation on what's happening in uh, Israel in the war with Hamas. So I hope you'll uh, be right here. Want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your very important day. Good night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook and join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.